0: Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to our April uh, webinar on the as a part of the construction webinar series here from Lois Law Firm. Uh, thank you all for joining me. I hope everyone's safe and healthy and hopefully watching this from the comfort of their home. Uh, as a reminder, or if you're here for the first time, my name is Tisha Rasul. I'm a partner here with Lois Law Firm i uh, oversee the construction uh, defense practice group here this webinar series is new this year every month we're covering a topic that's pertinent to defense of workers compensation claims that arise out of uh, construction work in new york and also new this year is my construction handbook if you don't have a copy yet uh, feel free to send me an email. I'll send you a copy. A PDF copy is also available, but you know, I like the smell of a new book and we have copies for you, so let me know. Uh, so, today we are going to talk about OSIPS and CSIPS, uh, collectively known as wrap ups. I'll go through them in detail, how they're important to construction. They're very, very popular. We'll talk about the advantages, disadvantages, the things we need for proper litigation of the construction claims that are under an OSIP policy. And a bonus, I'm gonna talk a little about COVID-19 and what's going on in the construction industry and the workers' compensation world. Um, there's a couple of developments that impact us and I'll let you know how to best handle them, how we're handling them here at LOIS. Remember, it's um, it's a live webinar. I am recording here in the office, uh, ask questions in the end, I will answer your questions. Um, just type them into the little box that looks like this, and I will see them, I'll read them, I'll answer them. Any question related to what I discuss here today, um, whether it's construction focused or just general workers comp, I know a lot of people still have questions about COVID-19. So type in your question and I'll sure to get you an answer. All right, so let's talk about the wrap-ups. I, I would say the majority of the construction that's going on in New York City, New York State, is under a wrap-up policy. And the reason is, there, there's a lot of benefits. The biggest reason it's done, it's, um, it saves the owner of the construction manager a lot of money, and it reduces a lot of risk. Now, it's important to know the difference between a wrap-up policy and an operational policy, which I'll get to, but let's go through the definition of a wrap-up policy. So it's one policy usually provides multiple coverages, such as workers' compensation, general liability, excess liability, and it's for enrolled contractors. Now, let's keep this in mind. I'll come back and talk about enrolled contractors and why this is very, very important, when we're defending workers' compensation claims. And it's also for a very specific site or project. So a particular hospital, a particular uh, train station, an airport, the coverage is only for that location. So oftentimes, so in workers' compensation court, everyone calls it a wrap-up policy. However, there's a distinction between an OSIP and a CSIP. OSIP means owner control, owner controlled insurance program, and a CCIP means a contractor controlled insurance program. Majority of the ones that we see are the OSIPs, controlled by the the actual owner of the project. So, for example, um, a state uh, a state entity, for example, the the schools uh, that's controlled by the state of New York, um, or hospitals. So if it's a public hospital, it's controlled by the state or uh, transportation uh, industry that's also controlled by the state that's the owner uh, contractor control it would be controlled by the general contractor who's on the project that's going to be responsible for the uh, the building the construction hiring subcontractors and so forth but like I said the majority of them are really the uh, OSIPs that are controlled by the owner now this is different from an operational policy because every every employer in the state of new york is required to have an operational policy the 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 name of the policy is itself explanatory in order to do business you must have a policy providing workers compensation general liability protections and this is really for everyday work that you're doing whether you're a a contractor whether you're in the construction industry or retail business you just need it however when the contractor is enrolled under an OSIP, their operational policy, as long as the work that they're doing under the OSIP is part of the OSIP, their operational policy is not going to be liable. Any injuries, any liability coming out of the work that they're doing under the OSIP, it's going to be straight on the OSIP policy. So let's keep that in mind because this is a big coverage contention when it comes to um, workers' compensation claims. All right, so let's look at some of the benefits of a wrap-up policy. Reduction insurance costs. This is particularly helpful for the small subcontractors, the small employers who um, whose premiums aren't very high. They don't have a very high level of um, a high a high. Uh, insurance policy, they're able to get more protection under the OSIP and not have to worry about increases in their premiums. It's also, um, overall, the OSEP, whether it's the OSIP or the CSIP, they're in charge of the cost of the insurance, and that's not trickled down to the enrolled contractors, the subcontractors, and so forth it's definitely a reduction litigation cost because there is a plan in place. There's no like cross litigation. We know when an accident arises out of a work a work that's being done on the construction project, if the contractor is enrolled and doing work that's covered by the project, it's going to be covered by the OSIP and we know litigation is gonna take place through the OSIP. We don't have to worry about uh, litigation against multiple employers to figure out who is the right one, or cross-litigation or anything like that. So it definitely helps to reduce litigation costs. It also helps to prevent gaps in coverage because a subcontractor may have a gap in his coverage for any any reason. For example, uh, non-payment or late payment of a premium, or he just wants to switch to a new uh, insurance carrier, and the next thing you know, an accident is happening when there's a gap in coverage, and then there's no coverage, and it just becomes a disaster. Um, the OSEP, having an OSEP or a CSEP, or as we want to lump them all together, a wrap-up, ensures that there's continuous coverage for the project, for the enrolled contractor, and for the kind of work that the contractor is enrolled to do. So we don't have to worry about uh, gaps in coverage. Efficient claims handling. So my next webinar is going to focus on preparing for the loss, which I'm going to talk a lot about effective claims handling and how the wrap-up program helps to facilitate uh, proper claims handling. But in a nutshell, for now, when a wrap-up program is set up, whether it's an OSIP or a CSIP, everything... We we know who all the parties are, we know what the policy covers, we know who the the subcontractors and contractors are, we know the kind of work that's being done, the phase that's being done, we know the location, we know everything about the project. And because of this, information is easily transmitted to all of the players, which allows for efficient claims handling. This saves time, it saves money, it allows for um, proper risk management, and it also reduces um, the amount of litigation that goes on. Um, the, the last major benefit of a wrap-up is that there's reduced risk, reduced risk through a uniform safety handling program. Every wrap-up, and I've worked with I work with a lot of them, every wrap-up has a definite safety protocol um, that includes you know, a safety manager. Uh, policies and procedures, an on-site medic, uh, reporting procedures that ensure the safety of workers, that ensure that injuries are reported properly and timely, and that everything goes smoothly. And this is because it's controlled by the OSEP program. Let's just imagine we were having a construction project with no OSEP, a massive project, each contractor or subcontractor has their own operational policy going. There is an accident. There's usually a lot of confusion about who to report it to, who's going to handle it, what happens next, where should I go for treatment, what should I do? By having a wrap-up policy, it really, really reduces the risk because it's so streamlined. So these are essentially the benefits of a wrap-up. This is why owners and general contractors usually go with a wrap-up when they're doing construction projects, especially uh um extensive um high exposure um construction projects all right so who is covered under a wrap-up policy so you've heard me mention enrolled contractors before this is very very important it's a part of um one of the coverage issues that we see regarding these cases now in order to be covered by the wrap-up, the contractor has to be enrolled, which means they have to submit an application, uh, they have to go through a vetting process, um, they have to submit their bids, and then they get a stamp of approval saying, okay, you're going to be approved to do work in this project, this is the kind of work that you'll be doing, Uh, this is how long you'll be doing the work, this is the location where you'll be doing the work. There's usually documentation uh, memorializing all of that, and that's how we have the proof that this is an enrolled contractor. If the contractor is not enrolled, they're not covered. This seems easy, but there's a lot of contractors on construction projects who are not enrolled, but they're on the project doing legitimate work. So for example, the contractor may be doing work during um, the demolition phase of a project. In many construction projects, demolition is not covered under the OSIP, but the contractor is there doing work. They're just not enrolled under the OSIP for that kind of work. The contractor, may they're doing some kind of asbestos abatement or hazardous removal, which is something that they were hired to do they are there legally, it's legitimate work, but they're not enrolled because the OCIP doesn't cover this kind of work. So you know, they're doing it, they're getting paid, someone gets into an accident while doing that kind of work, but it's not gonna be covered by the uh, wrap up. Then quite honestly, once in a while you get the situation where a subcontractor tries to bring in a sub subcontractor to do work kind of like on the side, and then an accident occurs and we learn that they're not even supposed to be there for any kind of work, Um, or, you know, their workers are not like unionized or, you know, they're not even authorized to work. And then that just creates more issues. But the simple answer really is they weren't enrolled. They weren't supposed to be there. There's no coverage for the accident. Um, other, Other examples of situations where there's like, Um, non-enrolled contractors, if they're under a certain number of hours, so someone may be brought in to do just one day work, and anything under, I don't know, 40 hours is not covered under the project. Uh, Under a certain contract value, maybe the contract value must be $100,000 and above, anything under that, not covered. Uh, As I mentioned before, hazardous materials work uh, vendors, generally not covered and demolition is not covered in many OSIPs. So, in those situations, what would happen in terms of coverage? We would contest it under the wrap-up, and the employer, the the contractor, they have to file the claim under their operational policy. All right. So, let's get into some more coverage issues in wrap-ups. Oops. All right. So, as I already stated, many make the assumption that all work and contractors are covered. Many times I go into court in one of these cases and our adversaries say, well, Judge, he said he was working on the project between this street and this avenue. It's clear that you know, it's a hospital or school or whatever it is. Um, he was there, this was a supervisor. What do you mean that he wasn't supposed to be there or he wasn't enrolled and there's no coverage? We have to go back to the actual policy documents, the enrollment documents, to see exactly uh, what happened in the very beginning, whether they're supposed to be there, not be there, and so forth. Um, the other issue that we see in with regards to coverage and wrap-ups is the date of loss. So the date of loss is important, and I know it sounds like pretty basic, but remember we're talking about a policy that starts on a particular date, and it ends on a particular date there there, in many many situations there's work going on before that date and there's work going on after that date for example demolition might not be covered or some kind of like pre-construction work is being done or after the project is uh, completed there's just less uh, last minute kind of like punch list items that are being done but are not covered as a part of the policy. So the date of loss is very important compared to the actual policy in when the, the wrap-up starts and when it ends. And while well, the phase of the project that goes back to like whether, whether it's demolition or it's like the punch list section, uh, phase and uh, whether it's actually covered by the OSIP. All right, so clarifying coverage under the wrap-up policy. You know, it's it's really easy to do so as long as you have all of the documents you need. And for me, when I'm defending one of these cases and coverage is a main issue, these are the things that I am looking for, the information that I'm looking for. I'm looking for a certificate of coverage showing that the employer was actually covered for that project. A policy manual, every uh, enrolled subcontractor gets a copy of the policy manual. It essentially describes the project, tells them what the safety protocol is, the procedures, the reporting procedures, who to call, who are the parties. Everyone gets one of those. Project completion documents. These are important if the date of loss, we're saying a date of loss uh, occurred after the wrap-up ends. We need documentation showing that hey, this project was completed, this person was paid, and the accident happened the day after all of that was done. Uh, The scope of work covered by the policy, like I mentioned earlier, some kind of work's just not covered. Uh, Hazardous material removal. uh, Architects are a lot of time not covered. Sometimes elevator work's not covered. Um, every, every policy is, every wrap-up program is different, and they will have a clear delineation of what's covered and what's not covered. And um, we also need to know, as with any accident, the location and the exact activity that's being carried out, where it's being carried out, by whom, uh, which contractor was on site, who was the super, or the foreman, all that stuff, just general information. That also helps with coverage in addition to compensability. So the actual documents that we need for any coverage issue, we need the actual policy. The actual policy is that 100, 200, 300 page of documents that have language that sometimes doesn't seem like English or it's repetitive, the same thing over and over, or these things call endorsements. Later in the year, we're gonna go through, I'll go through a policy, how to read a policy, what it means, Um, but for now, we're just gonna talk about you know, the, the, the main things in the policy that we need. So the policy actually sets forth the period, the name of the, the contract, uh, the covered party, the insured, the subcontractor. <clears throat> but the most important thing that we need the policy for, it tells you the location that's being covered. And this is very important in situations where there's, let's say, a statewide project done by, well, let's just say, the, transpor- the, the the transportation authority, okay? There are multiple projects going on at the same time. Each policy will specify the location. Is it in uh, downtown Manhattan, uptown Manhattan, the west side, east side? It'll have the exact name of the project, and the avenue, the street, and the kind of work that's going on. It's usually in the policy, and this is what we need it for, to show that our policy only covers that particular Location. Otherwise, many wrap-up um, programs have can have like hundreds of policies. If we don't have the exact location, then the claimant can just say, "Well, you know, this policy came up in the coverage search. It covers the the entity that's you know, the employer that's um, the, the claim is being filed against." But no, if the location is not identified, if the employer doesn't have coverage for that particular location, there's not going to be coverage. <clears throat> Certificate of coverage. This is something we always ask for. It's a good snapshot. It's one page. Sometimes it goes over to the second page. It has all of the basic information you need. And it's something that's in, it's, uh, obtained from the insurance carrier for, uh, by the subcontractor. And it provides um, the, the policy period uh, which carrier is responsible for what kinds of coverage. So one carrier may be responsible for workers' compensation and general liability. And then there's an excess carrier. It also, in most situations, but not all of them, they have a description of the actual project. So most of the times it's useful, but if it doesn't have the information about the project, then, you know, it, it's kind of useless. You might as well just get the actual policy itself the policy manual as i mentioned before this is usually kept by the uh, osip administrator just like the broker um, it's usually handy some projects they the, the owners have it on their website because it's standard for everyone you can go on the website and get it it has all of the information we've used it to successfully defend coverage issues showing that you know this kind of work is not <clears throat> covered within the osip or you know this was the time that the peer, the The project started, and this is when it ended, and this is when the OSEP policy covers. Enrollment log. That is actually supposed to say enrollment log, not just enrollment. Um, This, so this is a working document, and honestly, sometimes it can be hundreds of pages, and it's constantly updated because contractors come and go. Sometimes the same contractor is on and off the project, and then they're placed on and off the list but it's usually an Excel sheet that's being updated very often showing the name of the contractor, when they were actually on the project, the kind of work they were doing. Um, the issue with the enrollment log in, in using it in court, we do need someone to authenticate it and testify that uh, this is something that's kept in the regular course of business and it changes, but this is the one that they can certify that you know was in place for the particular alleged date of loss. And it shows that the uh, subcontractor was uh, not enrolled. The problem is this, you're you're proving a negative, right? If they're not, if they're not there, it means they're not enrolled. But usually with some testimony, we're usually able to use it successfully to contest that a contractor was actually enrolled in the project. All right, so the parties to a wrap-up policy program. There's usually a broker the insurance broker, they're the ones who are pretty much in the driving seat, taking control of the program. They facilitate um, discussions between the owner or the contractor and the insurance carrier. Hey, this is the, pro- this is the, the construction work that we're planning and doing. Uh, this is the scope of the work. This is how long it's going to take. Write me the best policy you can. The broker helps them to get the best policy. Uh, Some brokers are more involved than others. The ones that are more involved actually do uh, risk management and client management, and they serve as a facilitator between all parties. So whether it's um, between the insurance carrier and the TPA and defense attorneys, they're the ones in the driving seat uh, directing how the claim is going to move forward. Then there's the insurance carrier and the third-party administrator. The insurance carrier is the one that writes the policy. Um, every, almost every insurance carrier that I work with have a TPA, some of them administer themselves, but they're generally going out to a third-party administrator that actually um, uh, manages the, the policy and carries out the day-to-day handling and execution of the policy. Then there's the actual policyholder. So this would be the owner or the contractor. They actually are the policy holder, and that's distinct from the insured, which would be the subcontractor, the enrolled subcontractor on the job. They're the one for whom the, the coverage is being provided. And they're the ones who bring in the laborers, um, the, the construction workers. So when the claim is filed, the claim is filed against the employee employer, the subcontractor and it's under the wrap policy and then there's a general contractor um, this is particularly relevant in cases where it's a csip a contractor controlled insurance program they're the ones who are in the driving seat um, instead of the owner the enrolled contractor we all know what that is now I've talked about them so much they um, they're the the ones that are actually um, accepted under the program to do work and are covered. All right, so that's, a, that's an overview of wrap-ups, OSIPS, CSIPS. Um, the, main, the main issue that we see with them in workers' compensation is coverage and we need to know when to point our fingers to the operational policy. It's very, very important that we understand how the OSIP works. For me, I need to know who all the parties are. I need to know um, what their role is. I need to know, especially, the safety program they have in place so I can properly defend a claim. Even after we get past the issue of coverage, the compensability of a claim is defended the same way as any other claim, however, we do have more resources to defend those the compensability, and usually the safety program, the information that we get from like the safety program, when it was reported, how it was reported, where was he first treated, and um, the on-site investigations that usually take place under the wrap-up policies or the construction um, projects in general, we use those for the actual compensability of the claim. So, so essentially, uh, I guess another benefit for us from the defense perspective of working on claims that are part of a wrap of policy is that we have more resources, uh, more aligned resources to use in defending an actual compensability of a claim. But the more complex issue is usually the coverage because we don't want liability to fall on us if it doesn't really belong to us and getting the judges to understand the difference between a wrap-up and operational policy. Believe me, not all of the judges understand, we're always educating them. And so it's really important to understand how it works. I think it's also very important from the, uh, the risk manager's perspective, also in the claims handler's perspective to understand what's going on in the cases, who to get documents from, who you know, who is the policy holder, who's the insured, who's the enrolled contractor. Once you get a, a really solid understanding of all of this, you're really able to execute defense of the claims very easily. All right. So in the midst of all that's going on in our world, I couldn't resist but to include something about the COVID-19 situation that's currently going on. Um, as you may know, Workers' Compensation Board is uh, still doing virtual hearings. We are still uh, doing all phases of litigation. Nothing's halted. Um, The board has issued a couple of directives with regards to um, IMEs and labor market attachment that I'm going to go through. But I know we're all wondering about what's going on in the construction industry. So in New York, Governor Kuma has said essential construction is still going to go on. And there's an extensive list of what's uh, essential construction. It's like infrastructure, hospitals, uh, assisted living facilities, or um, uh, affordable housing facilities, emergency repair. And the Department of Building actually has like an interactive map showing which construction throughout the city is still ongoing. Um so if your if your client is you know considered part of essential construction uh their projects are still ongoing however some of my clients are considered to be essential but because of the spreading of COVID-19 on the job sites they have made the uh the, the personal decision to maybe like suspend work for a period of time or close projects and what happens in those situations workers aren't getting work, right? They're not going to work. They're just at home. So we do expect to see claims being filed. Now, in New York, we haven't, um, with regards to claims being filed under workers' compensation, we are still recommending denial of those claims because there's been no change of the law when it comes to workers' compensation and the compensability of those claims. There's been like rumors that it's going to be like a presumptive occupational disease and so forth, but there's no official change in the law. So we are denying all of those cases. What employers should know, though, and I think um, it's been made clear that under the um, Medical Leave Act under in New York, employers must give paid leave to those who either contracted it or in self-quarantine, mandatory quarantine, or caring for someone. But just remember, that's not under workers' compensation, so we're denying those claims. With that being said, we expect a lot of claims. We have uh, workers who are laid off or out of work, or who may just be afraid to go to work because they're afraid of catching it, Or, you know, they have to stay home and they're just trying to get compensability under workers compensation. We will see those claims. We have started seeing those claims. Um, So whatever you do, deny them and we're going to fully litigate them like any other denied claim. All right. So let's talk about the IME situation. The board has issued notices that the IME doctor is essentially not doing the I, are not supposed to do the in-person IMEs given the COVID-19 situation. Peer reviews can be done. Uh, the board has said if the carrier is not able to get an IME that was directed, they can submit an affidavit or an attorney affirmation just explaining the situation. Um, I think some people are going to take for granted that, well, it's well known that the COVID-19 situation is really hampering the 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 flow of the IMEs and so forth, that we don't really need the affidavit or the affirmation. And the board's going to be lenient, but we all know what leniency means when it comes to the carriers, right? So we strongly recommend having your defense attorneys submit those affirmation, having the vendors submit an affidavit. It can be simple, straightforward, saying because of the situation, doctor's office is closed, the board has directed IMEs not to take place, requesting an extension of time to get them done. The other situation that we're seeing a little bit of change in is the labor market attachment situation. <clears throat> so the board has issued a statement saying that with regards to classification trials, permanency trials, those can be adjourned until the labor market situation is improved, you know, so the claimant can actually do a legitimate uh, job search and provide those proofs because the. In order for him to continue receiving permanency benefits, he must show that he's attached to the labor market. However, the board has not issued any directive with regards to temporary disability benefits. So what we are doing is we're continuing to request depositions on degree of disability or requesting a finding of a partial disability, uh, raising labor market attachments and having the matter set for labor market attachments. Now, the the, the judges, what well, we've seen so far, they're not setting it for labor market attachment, but they're either directing the claimant to submit proofs or telling the carrier to file RFA 2s to bring the matter back on the calendar when the restrictions have been um, placed. Nevertheless, we recommend pushing for it to be set and at least raising it because we do believe it can provide some uh, leverage points, especially when it comes to settlement. I personally believe the more claimants would want to do settlement at this time, because you're out of work, just want some money. So we're going to continue to do our best to raise labor market attachments, uh, get those benefits suspended, and try to get the claim disposed of or use it somehow to our advantage. All right. Last but not least, the lowest situation. I know some of you are wondering what's really going on, but I can tell you we're up and function fully 100 percent all of our attorneys and all of our staffs working we're handling click cases from beginning to end we are here to answer your questions about anything COVID-19 related construction related just send me an email and I will get back to you as soon as possible but rest assured that we are just uh we're just uh doing business as normal there's been no disruptions um the cases are being handled uh, the way they were before this started. And we're available if you need us. All right. So let's see if there are any questions. Oh, there's no questions. I'm a little disappointed. I hope I covered everything everything, or maybe it was straightforward. But if you do have any questions, um Actually, one just came in. Let me see here. Okay, so the question is from John. And the question is, OSIPS slash CSIPS don't prevent an enrolled contractor's employee from suing the owner, general contractor, or another enrolled contractor Uh, for negligence, correct? Can the policy manual restrict and or risk transfer such situations? So in New York, the exclusive remedy is workers' compensation unless it's a grave injury. However, under general liability, the the third party can be sued for negligence. Um, With regards to the second uh, question, uh, Part of that question: Can a policy manual restrict and/or risk transfer such situations? The, the the general answer is no, because under uh, New York has uh, strict laws regarding uh, negligence and who's liable. So, uh, under the policy, the employer cannot uh, get out of being sued for negligence under general liability compensable um, litigation. All right. The next question is from Carrie. Her question is, I've been trying to raise labor market attachment since November. Should I file an RFA 2 to it raise it again as the claimant has not submitted job search proof? This is New York State. Yes. File the RFA indicating that the claimant has not submitted job search proof. I'm assuming that it was um, directed by the law judge previously. Um The judge, uh, I'm sorry, the board may set it for a hearing to address the issue, and when the hearing comes on, then you may just make the arguments. The good thing about this situation, Carrie, is because you've been trying to raise it since November. This COVID-19 situation has only been happening for about a month or so. So the claimant should have been um, looking for work from November until February and provides Proofs showing that he's entitled to benefits for that period. So I'd, I'd strongly recommend going ahead and filing the RFA 2 to bring it back onto the calendar. All right, no more questions. If you think of anything, just let me know, send me an email, you can give me a call. I really do like talking to people during all of this quarantine since I'm not seeing a lot of people physically. Um, so definitely give me a call. I would love to chat. And let me quickly talk about what's going to happen next. So as I mentioned, this is going on every month. It's the first Monday of the month. The next one is on May 4th, and we're gonna talk about preparing for the loss. So now we understand the wrap up, how it works, um, how to use the wrap up to our advantage and getting ready for that loss long before it happens. We'll talk a lot about that. And I'll try to give a lot of real life examples also. All right. So um, until then, stay safe, be healthy, uh, enjoy the quarantine. And I know that's kind of weird, but once all of this is over, we'll get back to our busy lives and we'll say, oh man, we wish we were still at home, you know, doing whatever we're doing. So enjoy the most that you can and stay safe. I'll see you next month.